Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. That's where we're going to be here eventually. I need a couple of volunteers to hand out these. Who would like to come up here and hand these out to the crowd? Any, many, money, mo. You're the first contestants here. All right. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. You can spread those out with Herman. Maybe need a couple over here. Thanks, Austin. You the man. And have you and Heather back from your vaca to Florida. Go ahead and hand those out. I think I have enough. I hope I don't run out. I should have 130 or so. Um, go ahead, and I want everybody to fill one of these out. Um, every person, uh, parents, if you do have younger children here, you might want to help them with theirs. Uh, we've been in this series entitled Revitalize, a Church Health Checkup. And something that I've referenced a couple of times is this book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church. Go ahead and skip to that slide, Jeremy. I'll come back and make that announcement at the end. Um, there's four types of churches that as, as church um, counselors and consultants have worked with churches over the years, they would put churches into four categories. 10% of churches would be what, what people would call healthy churches. Uh, then 40% would show some symptoms of sickness, like maybe a, a, a light cough, a light cold. Then there's some that are very sick. They, they have double pneumonia and they need to go to the hospital. You know, church is very sick. And then there's 10% of churches in America that are dying. Now, you might ask the question, well, how do we know whether we're healthy, whether we're somewhat sick, whether we're very sick, or whether we're dying? Well, the reason that I am putting this survey out here this morning is so that you can be uh, encouraged to read this book. How many of you have had a chance to read this short book in the last five weeks since I've recommended it? Raise your hand. Thank you so much for uh, having the time. I know that we're all busy. It is my prayer that you would. Now, for those who have read it, if you could bring your book back and let us borrow it and give it to somebody else, chances are you might not read it again. And so if you'll bring those books back so that we can share those now with new folks, it's a very affordable book. It's like $1.99 or $2.99 on Amazon Kindle, so you can download it and have it today if you'd like it. But um, re regardless of whether you've read the book to see what the 12 signs are of whether your church is healthy or somewhat sick, very sick or dying, regardless of that, I want you to take part of this survey this morning. Because I think for any church, if they're going to determine to get healthy, they have to first recognize how sick they are. How many of us uh, avoid going to the doctor? Raise your hand. All right, all right. I probably haven't been for a physical in um, four or five years. Probably need to go get a physical. How many of you would agree that it's probably a good idea to have a yearly physical? Or maybe every other year, but probably not a good idea to not have a physical in five years. Because um, what happens when you don't go and get a physical? You don't step on that scale like you should. And find out you ain't doing as good as you thought you were. They run your numbers and they're like, ooh, the cholesterol's high. Ooh, the blood pressure's high. So... What I want you to do is I want you to just look at these four categories. And, and if you've been here to hear these messages, I want you just to mark what the Spirit tells you in your heart right now. Do you believe that we're a part of the 10% of churches in America that are healthy? And what are some reasons why you would think that we're healthy? Or do we show some, some signs of sickness? Like maybe we've got a light cough or we're running a little bit of a headache. Um, and, and, and mark why you think we're a little bit sick. Do you think we're really sick? You know, what are some of the reasons why you would say that? This is very subjective, okay? This is not objective, I get it, unless you've really read the book to see what, what we're discussing. But I'd love everybody's participation. 
And then, um, do you think we're dying? And why? Now you might say, well, I don't want to mark that box because that'll be discouraging to you, Pastor. No, no, no. Actually, if you mark that and you give me some good reasons why, um, that's going to help us as we seek to lead our church into better days ahead, into better health. Amen? How many of you want to be as healthy as God wants us to be as a local church? Raise your hand. You want us to be healthy? Boy, I do. Do you want to see us growing and thriving and making more and better disciples of Jesus through the power of his saving and transforming grace? I sure do. And so I hope that you'll mark that accordingly. And here in just a few minutes, actually, at the end of the service, we'll collect those. Pastor Don, will you jot a note so I don't forget to collect these cards? Thank you. I'm so thankful for Pastor Don and his help so that I don't forget these things. So we'll collect those cards here at the end of the service. And just want to encourage you to take this short church health survey as we seek to grow in the days ahead and be a healthy and thriving church. That's been the whole heartbeat behind this series. I hope that it's been a blessing to you. Several of you have shared feedback about it and have been encouraging in your thoughts. And so I really do appreciate that. Go ahead and take out your sermon handout that you should have received this morning. And one announcement that I'll make just quickly is this Friday, we have something at our house called First Fridays. And this is for singles and young couples ages 18 to 30-ish, all right? And so we'd love for you to come over to our house. We're going to have some food, play some games, just a time of deepening relationships. And so there's no agenda on the schedule other than just to love on you, you to love on us, and for us just to have a great time of fellowship together. And so that's this Friday evening. We start at 7 p.m., so we'd love to have you join us for that. It's First Friday's at the preacher's house. So hope to have you over there. We'll have a great time of fellowship together. Let us know if you uh, can't make it and that you're like, yo, man, I hate that I can't make it for this second one, but I'll definitely be there for the next one. Now, we won't have one in November. We'll get back up again with a singles and young, young couples uh, Christmas party in December, which we'll tell you later about. All right, at this time, we're going to look at our uh, uh, study here in Acts chapter 2 today. And just before we do that, let's have a word of prayer. Because prayer is not just something that we should tack on, um, but it's something that really is a main part of, what, of who we are and how we live as believers. And so let's pray. Father, um, we petition you today that you would uh, speak through your word, that you would challenge us in this area that we're going to study. Father, guard my thoughts, guard my motives, um, help me to be, uh, to have the right balance of both encouraging and exhortation, challenging, comforting, Lord, ultimately your spirit, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, he's our comforter, he's the one that leads us and guides us into all truth. So God, I pray and ask by faith that you would lead us and guide us into all truth today, and that you would help us to see um, how our church can be healthy and thriving to make more and better disciples of you through the power of your saving and transforming grace. And so, Father, speak to us now, and may you be glorified in our response to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you know what your average resting heart rate is? <laughs> you don't have to do that for 30 seconds, but... But uh, now some of y'all have the cool new watches, you know, that tell you your average resting heart rate. Do you know what your average resting 
heart rate is. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, so much of our physical health is measured by different sets of numbers. And I just said, you know, when we go to get a physical, we don't like some of those numbers because they give to us the unadulterated truth of the matter and what we really need to hear. One key number that reflects largely on our physical health is our resting heart rate or our pulse. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> Obviously. Uh, if you don't have a pulse, are you healthy? No, you're, yeah, you're not living. You're dead. So obviously our pulse is the most important uh, number out there because without it, the other numbers don't matter. If you don't have a pulse, you're dead. It's, it's no accident that God refers to the church as a body throughout the New Testament. And he wants that body to be healthy. And so he uses this body metaphor for very intentional reasons so that we understand how the church must function and grow in spiritual health. When we think about the spiritual health of a church, there are many metrics or many numbers that help us qualify how we're doing at growing and thriving as a body of believers. But what would be the pulse of the church? What would be the literal heartbeat of the church? Today, we conclude our series by studying the first century church in the book of Acts and observing what the pulse was for them and how this key truth transformed their lives. I believe the one foundational essential that was present at the church's birth and continued through their early growth is the same essential for us today. And that is this, prayer is the pulse of a healthy and thriving church. Without prayer, the church dies and no effectiveness and has no effectiveness in changing the world around them. And so I want you to look at two passages of Scripture. First of all, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers, plural, and I don't know about you, but whenever I've read this verse, what are the things that jump out at you? Well, a lot of times what jumps out to Baptists is breaking of bread, you know, or the apostles' doctrine, you know, the teaching, the preaching. That's what jumps out. But today we want to focus on that final piece because really without the pulse of prayer in a local church, all these other things are just empty activities prayer and so with that verse in mind let's turn over to our passage we'll be really parking in today of course looking at many other supporting texts as well acts chapter 4 verses 23 through 31 acts chapter 4 verses 23 through 31 the bible says this and being let go they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. So what had happened? Um, the, the Peter and John had been arrested for teaching the gospel, preaching the gospel. Of course, then they were let go. They come to the house, the uh, upper room where the church had been started. And in verse 24, when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord... Thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage? 
and the people imagine a vain thing. So notice this, what the early church was doing is they lifted up their voices in loud and audible prayer in unison, in unity together. And here's what's so cool. They prayed scripture back to God. They're quoting Psalm 2 here. So it says there, as David has said, verse 25, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings. You know how you can tell you're serving Jesus? When you're facing spiritual warfare and you're being threatened. I'll tell you what, yesterday we went out for the 40 Days for Life event there at the, in front of the Alabama Women's Center in Huntsville. And, you know, not everybody was happy that we were out there. <laughs> and all we were doing was holding a simple sign that said, pray for the end of abortion. That's it. No words, just holding a sign. And we were not, unfortunately, we weren't just getting thumbs up. And so the, the apostles, the, the disciples were facing the same reality. They were preaching the gospel. They were, they were proclaiming truth to a very dark, darkened culture. It was no different for them. And they said, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. So the disciples prayed for boldness by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, I want us to read those next four words out loud together. I'll read the first phrase again before the comma, and then let's read those next four words together. Are you ready? And when they had prayed, the place was shaken. Let's do that one more time. Let's try to shake this place a little bit, all right? And when they had prayed, the place was shaken. Wow. A prayer quake. It was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled, filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. God answered their prayer. The key truth I want us to see today for the next few minutes as we rehearse what we've studied and learned over the last several weeks. If you think back, in week one, we talked about how uh, this is a matter of faithful stewardship, and God has entrusted to us as a local church resources and in, in buildings and, and funds and in opportunities and influence. And he wants us to steward those wisely. He doesn't want us to be like that unfaithful servant who responded in fear and buried his resources in the ground, never investing them for kingdom advancement. And so we talked about stewardship the first week. The second week, we talked about the value of the phrase one another in scripture. And we talked about why one another is so vital to us being a healthy and thriving church. When we understand the value and the vitality of every person, see, 
We're a body. We need every single part of the body. We can't just have a mouth on stage, all right? I'm, I'm the mouth, okay? I'm the preacher, but, but we need eyes and ears and feet and toes and, and kneecaps and elbows. I mean, elbows are important. Sometimes we don't think that because they're not too beautiful. But we need elbows, right? We need every part of the local church. And so the value of one another. Week three, we talked about five signs of a healthy church. And we looked at those signs and we studied why those signs were so vital to the early church's success. And then we talked last week about four attitudes that'll hinder, hinder a healthy church. We talked about the attitude of entitlement, the attitude of superiority. We talked about the attitude of self-dependence and the attitude of a pessimistic spirit. And so we looked at those last week and we compared it to the life of Christ and how he exemplified none of those things. He was, he was grateful. Uh, he didn't think, he, he, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He was a humble servant. He didn't have this air of superiority about himself. He was dependent upon his father, not dependent even upon himself and his deity. No, in his humanity, he was dependent upon his father. And of course, even though he knew he was going to face great agony, he was hopeful for the future because he knew that his father would raise him up. And so this week, we see this simple truth. The early church thrived because the early church prayed. It was the pulse. It was the heartbeat of the life of the early church. And so I just want to answer three quick questions quickly. Number one, you can write these down. Number one, how did the early church pray? How did they pray? Number one, as you study the book of Acts, not only this passage in Acts 4, but throughout the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, you're going to find, number one, how did they pray? They prayed without ceasing. They prayed without ceasing. Every time you open up a story in the book of Acts, somewhere they're praying. I mean, even in the very first missionaries that were sent out in Acts 13, what's so fascinating about that story in Acts 13 is they didn't meet with the predetermined decision to send out Paul and Mark, or Paul and Silas. I'm, I'm getting confused here at the moment. Someone can correct me later. But, but, but those first missionaries that they sent out, um, they, they actually met first to pray. And as they were praying, the Spirit said, send these two guys out. And so it was actually a prayer meeting that turned into a missions commissioning service. Whoa! Talk about amazing. And so pray without ceasing. Paul, Paul admonished the church of Thessalonica to do this. Pray without ceasing. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that we, you know, uh, all day, every day, every second of the day, we're in constant uh, uh, petitioning of God? And we're going to talk about the different as as aspects of prayer today. But what does it mean? Well, what it means here is that prayer is our lifeline. It's our source of strength. And so praying without ceasing is literally living in God's presence at all times. It's abiding in Him. It's walking in Him. And so praying is simply talking with your Heavenly Father, depending upon Him at every moment of the day. It's a God awareness. It's a Savior awareness. It's, it's an awareness that you are God's child. He is your father, and you have access to the throne of grace, whether it's 3 p.m. or 3 a.m. You can wake up. Well, your, 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 your heavenly father doesn't sleep, does he? He's always awake, ready to listen. So praying without ceasing. This is how they prayed. As you study it, you'll see that. They prayed without ceasing. It was their lifeline. It was their source of strength. It was their source of dependence. They lived with a constant awareness of God's presence at all times. They abided in Him. They walked with Him. They were connected to the vine. 
And so they prayed without ceasing. Number two, they prayed individually. They prayed individually. As you study the, the, the Gospels, as you study the book of, of Acts, what you find out is that Jesus taught his disciples by example to go and spend time alone with God, with their Father. He references this in Matthew 6 when he says, listen, don't pray always in public so that people can see you. He says in Matthew 6, verse 6, enter into your closet and pray individually before your father. And your father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. And so Jesus put an emphasis on us praying individually. Hey, question, Christians, believers, is the only time we pray throughout our week a time when we're together with other people or are we praying before our heavenly father individually? depending upon him, coming to him, asking him. And of course, Jesus modeled this individual life of prayer. He was known as a, yes, a great teacher, as one teaching with divine authority. But what does his, did his disciples ask him to really teach them? Lord, teach us to pray. Because they saw Jesus get up early, well before sunrise, and go off into the mountain and pray individually. So prayer was a personal habit nurtured by Jesus. And so these, these early churches, they prayed without ceasing. They prayed individually. Number three, they prayed corporately. They prayed corporately. Of course, we can see that here. We, we, we get to read many of the prayer meetings, prayers here in the book of Acts. And Acts chapter 4 is one of those. In this passage today that we're looking at, we see a powerful example of the early church praying together. Notice that phrase, they raise their voice to God with one accord. You know how you can tell when you're truly united with someone, you want to pray with them. You want to uh, pray together because you're both on the same page. You're both going towards the same purpose and goal uh, to make more and better disciples of Jesus through the power of his saving and transforming grace. There's no doubt the early church had that as their goal or some version of those words, to make disciples, to go into every nation. In fact, they quoted Psalm 2, which is so fascinating. They only quoted the first couple of verses. Later on in that psalm, it talks about how God is going to give the nations to the Messiah. I think verse 8 of Psalm 2. And and so the church had this global vision in mind, this purpose. And so they gathered corporately to pray together because they knew where two or three are gathered in God's name, there is God in the midst of them. And so they prayed together corporately. Number four, how did they pray? They prayed with the word of God. I've already mentioned it. They quoted scripture in their prayer to God. Now, of course, if we're going to pray God's word, we've got to be in God's word. And we need to have God's word permeating our life and, and ministering to us because the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so God loves it. I believe God loves to hear us pray his word back to him. And so look at verses 24 through 26. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. You see, the disciples knew that the world wasn't going to accept and embrace Jesus just like they want today. Sometimes we think, well, it's worse now than it was for them. I, I don't know. Maybe in some ways it is. Maybe in some ways it's not. They had the same resistance. They were thrown in jail. I haven't been thrown in jail yet for my faith. They were. 
And so they were praying the word of God back to their heavenly father. Praying the word of God, I believe, is one of the most potent weapons that we've been given in the spiritual warfare that we face as believers. The only offensive weapon listed in the armor of a Christian in Ephesians 6, well, maybe there's two. Number one, for sure, the word of God. It, 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 it calls the word of God the sword. How many of you would agree a sword is an offensive weapon? Everything else is, is somewhat defensive and protective. Helmet, belt, uh, a shield, breastplate, those are all defensive. But the sword of the spirit, however, I always love this because if you keep on reading, the passage keeps on going and it says, praying always in the spirit. So perhaps prayer is our other offensive weapon. And so when we pray the word of God, we're using the offensive weapon. We know that the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's what ministers to hearts. I love what Ian Bounds, a great man known for prayer, he said this about the word of God. He said, the word of God is the fulcrum upon which the lever of prayer is placed and by which things are mightily moved. Do you believe that this morning? I hope we do, because it's the prayer of belief. It's the prayer of faith. It's the prayer of faith in God's word. God answers our prayers to the proportion that his word is abiding in us. John 15 verse 7 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. God loves for us to pray his word. So how did this early church pray? They prayed without ceasing. They prayed individually. They prayed corporately. They prayed with the word of God. Number five, how did they pray? They prayed earnestly and fervently. James says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. There's passion in their prayer. There's earnestness in it. Why? Because they're in a circumstance where they see the time as urgent. These disciples, they were in a situation where they were facing persecution because they were seeking to share and live out the truth of the gospel. And so their prayer was, was earnest and fervent. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So as we read here in this passage, we see that the early church was earnest and fervent in their prayers. Why? Because they were gripped by the urgency of their circumstances and cried out to God in dependent desperation. And earnestness and fervency, I believe, are born out of faith and a conviction that God hears and wants to answer our prayers if we ask. You see, Jesus modeled this. Was Jesus earnest and fervent in his prayer life? You better believe it. Luke 22, verse 44 says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. To see Jesus' dependence in that great hour of need is truly humbling. And it really challenges me to reflect upon my life and say, when was the last time that I had that kind of earnestness and fervency in my prayer life? Are we earnest and fervent? Do we really want to see God work in ways that only it can be explained as God? We have not because we ask not. And we ask and receive not because we ask amiss that we may consume it upon our lusts. 
So how did the early church pray? They prayed without ceasing. They prayed individually. They prayed corporately. They prayed with the Word of God. They prayed earnestly and fervently. And then they also prayed with thanksgiving. They prayed with thanksgiving. Now, this is so important because I think for some of us, when we hear prayer, we think immediately of a long list of petitions. And petitioning God is a part of prayer. Turn with me quickly to Matthew chapter 6. We don't have a lot of time, but I want you to see the model, uh, the uh, Lord's Prayer that it's called. And this is a prayer that Jesus was teaching primarily to Jewish hearers. But it's uh, principles that we can glean from our lives as well for our lives as well. And if you look, he talks about how we start in prayer. And so here's the different aspects of prayer, which I I think is so important for us to hear. First of all, there's this confidence that we have a right relationship with God as our father. See, he's not just a king. It could say our king, which art in heaven, or our great master, which art in heaven. Now, is God a king? Is God a master? Sure he is. But Jesus said, I want you to know him as father, just like a son knows that his father will hear him, our father. So, so there's this right relationship. So if you don't have a personal relationship with God, then you'd have no confidence that he's your father. And, and, as, and as Scott quoted that verse in Galatians, our hearts cry out, Abba, Father, because we know that we are his and he is ours and that we've entered into a relationship. And so do you have that relationship with God where you can go to him and call him father and have the confidence to know that he hears you not because of you but because of his son Jesus who lived as you died for you and was raised for your justification to make you like him our father but then it talks about our father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name so what's prayer prayer involves praise and adoration you know what some days God isn't interested in your petitions He just wants to hear you praise and adore him. You know, there's some days when, and and here's the point, God knows what we have need of before we ask. Now, should we ask? Sure we should. And we should exercise that dependence for the big things and the little things. God is not overwhelmed by anything going on in your life. And so does he want us to bring our supplications before him? Yes, but with thanksgiving that you request. So, So praise and adoration. Then there is petitioning. Um, He says here, give us this day our daily bread, verse 11. And so we are petitioning. We are asking God to give us this day our daily bread to bring forth his kingdom. So we're asking God to bring forth the work of the gospel in the world. And I love that comparison and contrast between verses 10 and 11. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Talk about the massive goal and petition. And the little daily need. What an amazing God we have. He wants us to praise and adore him. He wants us to petition him with the big asks and the little things that we think are little. And then, of course, we see also prayer for confession. He talks about how uh, we, we should be willing to confess our trespasses to God. I'm so thankful for the finished work of Jesus and the fact that he gave to us through his shed blood total forgiveness. But God tells us throughout the New Testament to confess, to trust him, to come back over and over and say, God, I repent of that sin. I know that that sin placed you on the cross. And I thank you that 2,000 years ago on the cross, Jesus Christ, that sacrifice was sufficient. 
And so we confess and we also pray for protection and temptation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And so we see all these aspects and, of course, also thanksgiving. So praise, adoration, petition, confession, protection, and thanksgiving. God, thank you for who you are and what you're doing in my life. Thank you that you are going to answer this prayer. I, it, might, it might not be answered in the way that I think, because you're all wise. I don't give my kids everything they ask for, and I don't give it to them just right, right yet. I got to tell you a funny story. Joey, I hope it's okay if I tell this story. Joey came to my, to my wife and I and petitioned us a couple months ago, you remember? We had made you wait for a long time for a certain thing, to be able to play a certain game. He uh, wanted this certain game, and uh, he, came up, he came up with a very fine petition. He uh, had a 15-minute speech of why he thought he should get this. And we had told him, he had asked for a couple of years, and we had said, Joey, just wait, just wait, Joey. Why? Because we're his parents, and we know a little bit more than him, you know, and, and, and so we love him, and, and we just didn't think he was the right age. Well, well Joey did his homework, and he had, he had done his preparation, and he came in, and seriously, he gave to my wife and I in our bedroom a 15-minute speech on why he thought he was ready for this game. And you know what? He was ready at that point. He, he had exemplified so much growth and maturity that he was now ready for that answer. And so sometimes, I want to encourage you, sometimes we get discouraged in asking God to work in our life because we don't see an immediate answer. But just consider that that's not a no. It's probably just a wait. Wait upon the Lord. Trust in Him. And so... How did they pray? Without ceasing individually, corporately, with the word of God, earnestly, fervently, with thanksgiving. Where did they pray? This is going to be a quick point here. Where did they pray? Look at all the places that they prayed. Number one, they prayed in homes. They prayed in homes. That's where they were praying here in Acts chapter number four. That's where they had to pray most of the time back in those days because they didn't have church buildings. But they prayed in homes. Uh, prayer in the home was so important in their small groups, in their families. They prayed in homes, Acts 2.46 says they traveled from house to house, breaking bread, worshiping together. They prayed in homes. Number two, they prayed in the temple. In Acts 3 verse 1, you see the, uh, the time of prayer at the temple and the apostles going there, the disciples going there. So they prayed in the temple at that time. They then also, number three, they prayed on the streets. They prayed on the streets. Kind of like some of us were doing yesterday at the uh, 40 Days for Life event. We were praying on the streets. And there were some not, no, not, not so nice things written on the sidewalk. And so, praise the Lord, we just stood right on those things that were written and prayed. And praying on the streets. And this is what the apostles did. Acts 3-2 and Acts 7-59-60. through 60. They prayed on the streets. Number four, they prayed in prison. Acts 16. When Paul and Silas had been, again, arrested for preaching the gospel, for doing the work of the Lord... They were arrested, and rather than complaining, rather than getting upset and giving the jailer a hard time, they bowed and they prayed. And of course, again, God did an incredible work there. They prayed in homes, they prayed in the temple, they prayed on the streets, they prayed in prison. What is this showing us? It's showing us that they lived this life of dependence. Prayer wasn't just a religious ritual and exercise that they did in the service on a Sunday morning. It was continual in the homes, in the streets, in the prisons, in the temple, and then finally in special locations as well. They prayed in special set-aside locations. Um, 
Acts chapter 10, verse 9, it tells about Peter being up on top of the roof and having this uh, uh, prayer time with the Lord. Um, Jesus modeled these special locations in his earthly life. There were several special places that he went alone, again, individually, to pray. You know, I will never forget Young Tower North Lobby, the stair tower, when I was in Bible college. It was my place. And I thought about that this week. Man, college was hard. Of course, I look back and it wasn't that hard, you know. But I thought it was hard at the time. And there were some days when all I could do is just go to the very top. How the stair towers worked is, is actually above the top floor. You had another flight of stairs with a landing that went to the door to the roof. Of course, it was locked, but, but that was just a landing up there, probably 10 by 10 foot landing. And you could just sit there in somewhat darkness. I mean, the lights were still on in the stair tower, but that top area didn't have the lights on. And you could just, you could be alone. Because in college, if you have roommates, you're never alone. And, this, and that gets very taxing. And so you could just have that special. I'll never forget Young Tower, the North Stair Tower, the top landing. Here's my question. Do we have those special secret places where we go and spend time with the Lord? He wants you to. Now, you can meet with them on I-565 in traffic. I get it. But let's just face it, we're a little bit more distracted on, on I-565. They had special set-aside locations. Of course, the first special set-aside location for corporate prayer was the upper room. And wow, look at how the church was birthed there. So these are areas where they prayed. What's the point of all these? The point is they weren't ashamed to pray. Do you realize sometimes your greatest witness is when you pray without fear and without ashamedness in public, even just over your food. Today, as you go to lunch, you, do you realize that you're, I mean, it's amazing. I was, I was having lunch with Darren this week and, and we were just talking and our waitress came up towards the end and said, Darren, or uh, said to both of us, are you guys from a church? How did she tell? Well, I guess for a couple reasons. Number one, we, we, we prayed. And number two, we were talking about spiritual things. And, and if, and if y'all know anything, Darren doesn't have a quiet voice. So I'm just teasing Darren. We, we, we both have loud voices. And so that's easy to be heard. And so that's the point. They weren't ashamed of that. They weren't ashamed of their dependence on Why did the early church thrive? Because they prayed. They prayed. So we see where they prayed. We see how they prayed. And finally, we see what did they pray for? What did they pray for? Number one, they prayed for healing and deliverance from unclean spirits. Acts 5.16 talks about how they, they prayed for, for this deliverance um, for, for many individuals. And, and, and the point here is that we must remember that prayer, first, mo for, first and foremost, is spiritual warfare. Satan hates it when he sees God's people praying. And you know what? Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. That's an Ian e. Bounds quote as well. And so they prayed for healing and deliverance from unclean spirits. We're engaged in spiritual warfare and prayer is the heartbeat. 
Do you have a consistent daily time of praying before God, of talking to God, saying, God, I love you, I adore you, uh, listening to some songs and, and have your own personal worship service. And then you go into sharing with God those needs that are on your heart for that day. And then you turn from that and you look at your, 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 your life and you say, okay, God, I'm holding on to that sin, and God, I confess it and forsake it, and thank you so much for the answer that you gave in Jesus Christ. Lord, I repent, I turn from that, and Father, protect me from that temptation the next time I face it. Help me to see you as being better and not this sin. And so this is spiritual warfare. <laughs> Anybody know who Miss Clara is? Miss Clara from War Room, the movie that was popular several years ago? Good old Miss Clara. She was giving counsel to a wife who was going through a very difficult marriage situation. And she, here's a couple of quotes she said. Good old Miss Clara. She says, we're not fighting against our family. We should be fighting for our family. What was she saying in that quote? She was saying, don't miss out on who the real enemy is. And you know what? We can apply that to our church. You know what? We're not fighting against one another here in our church, or we shouldn't be. We should be fighting for our brothers and sisters in Christ in prayer. And it's like that quote flipped the switch in the wife's, in the character of the wife's mind where, whoa, it changed her perspective. Ms. Clary also said, you're fighting the wrong enemy. You see, the real enemy here is not you or me. The enemy is the enemy of all of us. And his name is Satan. He's the deceiver. And we know his end. But boy, do it sometimes... We allow him to get the upper hand because we don't pray. And so God calls us to pray for, for healing and deliverance from unclean spirits. This is a spiritual warfare. As people were driving by yesterday, giving me the one finger salute, you know what I did? Pray. Pray for them. Because they're pawns in, in the enemy's war, and they can't even see it. Number two, what did they pray for? They prayed for boldness to speak the word of God. That's what we see here in Acts chapter 4, verse 29. They asked God specifically for this, boldness. Why did they ask for boldness? Because they were being obedient, and they needed boldness to continue to be obedient. So they were being obedient, and they were saying, okay, God, but we need that boldness. We need courage. They were seeking to fulfill the Great Commission, and they needed courage for the calling. You only ask for boldness if you're ready and willing to obey. Some people will never pray for boldness because they're comfortable right where they are, so they don't have the need for boldness. These guys asked for boldness because they needed it. They were stepping out into new territory, and they knew that maybe their very lives were at stake because of it. You know the places where the church is thriving most in the world right now? China and Iran. Why? Because their actual life is on the line. I can't wait to show you a video you can find on YouTube about what God is doing in the church of Iran right now. It is mind-blowing. God's at work. We don't feel it. We don't feel it all the time, but God's at work. Boldness, speak the word of God. Uh, number three, healing, signs and wonders, Acts 4.30, and the dead to be raised. Now, there's a lot of debate today about our healing signs and wonders and the dead being raised to life, you know, were those one-time events in the book of Acts. There's a debate about that, and we're not going to get into that today, regardless of where you fall on that spectrum. 
of signs and wonders and the different gifts of the church, the reality is God can still work in powerful and unexplainable ways if we're asking him to do so in our lives. Because let's face it, the greatest miracle is a transformed heart. The greatest miracle is to see single moms coming to know Jesus. Amen? To see, to see God doing a work in families. And he is, and he continues. Even when we can't see it, he's working. And so we're going to believe that God can do the miraculous. You know what? We experienced that nine years ago. God led us out to this place, and I think we've forgotten how providential that was. How amazing that was. And oh, that we would continue to trust him in that way. Do you believe that God can do the impossible? Only God can speak life into a dead tomb. Only God can speak life into a dead marriage. Only God can speak life into that dead relationship. Only God can speak life into that dead parent and child relationship. Only God can raise to life a dead or dying church. Healing, signs, wonders, the dead to be raised. Number four, what did they pray for? They prayed for the forgiveness of their persecutors. This blows my mind. Stephen there, as he's being stoned for his faith in Acts 7, verses 59 and 60, look at it. It says, and they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And they kneeled down and cried with a loud, he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, get them good. Burn them. That's not what he prayed. I'll let you read it. Lay not this sin to their charge. When he had said this, he died. He fell asleep. So what did they pray for? They prayed for the forgiveness of their persecutors. Why? Because they realized they weren't the enemy. The people driving by me yesterday, not happy that I was out there fighting for life. And, fight, and, and, and my brothers and sisters, Mike and Lynn, and their family out there uh, just making a simple statement with a sign as cars are driving. You know what? They aren't the enemy. Satan's the enemy. They need Jesus because I needed Jesus. You needed Jesus. We need him every day. Give us this day our daily bread, a daily dependence. And so they prayed for all these things. And finally, they prayed for the persecuted they prayed for their brothers and sisters who were being persecuted. We see that here in this story. We see it in other stories here in the, in the book of Acts. They were praying for their brothers and sisters who were, who were in, imprisoned. So they prayed for the persecuted. They prayed for God's guidance as they made decisions. We see that in Acts chapter number 6 with the choosing of the deacons. Um, we see that in the prayer meeting when Paul and his uh, companion were sent out in Acts 13. So they prayed for God's guidance, they prayed for their persecuted brothers and sisters, and they prayed for folks to be saved. They prayed for folks to be saved. Over at the end of the book of Acts, Paul, Paul is talking there, and he and he's talk, talks about how he's been praying for the conversion of many officials that he had a chance to witness to. So here's my question. We started this um, service, or this uh, series, a few weeks ago, back at the beginning of the month, and then the second week, we handed out this little string. Now, you might have lost the string, okay? But what did the string represent? It represented each one of us. Now, some of y'all have them. And if you have them, you can go ahead and hold them up. And if you need to go get another one like I had to this morning, you can go out to the side table and grab one real quick. But what did this string represent? Well, it represents us. We're all 
different in certain ways, different colors, right? Different gifts. But this string represents us as a body of believers. And we talked about how a threefold cord is not quickly broken. We said probably with relative ease, we can break this string. But once you start to braid three, four of these together, it becomes very strong. And what is the most important way that we must twist our lives together as believers? Through prayer. Through prayer. And so here's my question, brothers and sisters. Over the last three or four weeks, since I challenge you to do this, have you and I prayed one time for the health of our church? For the transformation of our church, that we would be healthier as a body of believers, that we would be growing and thriving as a church? Have you prayed for God to do only what he can do in this place? If you haven't, I'm not here to beat you up over it, but I'm here to exhort you as your pastor to challenge you. This church will only thrive with the pulse of prayer. And not that we're going to use prayer as a means to get anything. Listen, again, we can, we can see all these changes and growth as a body of believers. And we're just going to trust God for whatever God would have. But churches that are dying churches are churches that have ceased to pray with one another. And they are no longer praying for one another. And so may we make the decision to pray together as a church. Pray.